You're listening to the However Improbable Podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Cole. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This episode, we're talking mortuary meet-cutes, the science of deduction, and murderous Mormons. If you want to listen to our audio adaptation of the story, go back an episode. We'll be here. Published in 1889 in Beaton's Christmas Annual, A Study in Scarlet marks Conan Doyle's first published Sherlock Holmes story, the first of four novellas, and the beginning of a beautiful friendship. If you'll recall from our intro episode, we're discussing the stories in chronological, not publication, order. This happens to be the first on both accounts. Although it is worth noting that Baron Gould places this third chronologically, because the two short stories occur before Holmes and Watson meet. So the two prior to A Study in Scarlet. And we'll talk more about why we've rearranged things when we get to those stories. So A Study in Scarlet introduced the world to Sherlock Holmes, but it was not hugely popular when it was first published. In fact, it was a bit of a struggle for the 28-year-old Arthur Conan Doyle to get it published at all. It's certainly iconic for capturing the first moments Holmes and Watson lay eyes on each other, and also for the weird murders and the sudden diversion into the American West. If you're hearing this for the first time, you might be expecting the venerable, middle-aged, well-respected private detective that's so common in popular culture. Do you really know Sherlock Holmes like you think you might? What does this tale tell us about Holmes, Watson, and what's coming in the following 59 stories? And what's the deal with the Mormons, anyway? Let's get into it! How do you summarize the study in Scarlet in 60 seconds or less? (laughs) That's a big question. The briefest summary that we can feasibly do. Put St. Bart's Hospital on the map for the place that you meet the most important person in your life. And that's really the most important part about this story, if you ask me. Watson returns after serving as a military doctor in the Second Afghan War. And so he is now in London, really not having a good time. He runs into his old pal, who then introduces him to Holmes at St. Bart's, where... Yeah, in, in like, the, the or laboratory. in the laboratory. In the and so, basically, they agree to move into Baker Street together, because Holmes is looking for someone to share his flat with because he can't afford it on his own. And Watson, meanwhile, needs to move out of the hotel he's renting in the Strand because it's way too pricey, and because Mm -hmm. he is just not enjoying being back in London and being by himself. And then it sort of follows Watson, and he tries to figure out what his new roommate does for a living. Holmes has to come out and tell him that he is the world's only consulting detective, after Watson sort of insults a piece he wrote in the newspaper, which then leads to them going to solve a murder together. The fate of how everything else develops is... Right, it's the... Watson insults Holmes. Central plot. Holmes says, watch me solve a murder. I have to show off because you've insulted my intelligence. And then it all unravels from there. He solves a murder really quickly in this story because really Mm -hmm. a third is this strange diversion with a third-person omniscient narrator to the American West that is not Watson's narration, where 
really just to wrap it up very quickly, it is a revenge plot after a man mm-hmm. and his adopted daughter are killed. He follows these people through decades and decades and eventually kind of ends up in London at the same time that Holmes and Watson are there, and then they collide. Here, I've got a question for you. Yeah. What was it like reading A Study in Scarlet? It's, it's probably been a little while for you since you have. The things that were the most notable to me living in 2020 were some very uncomfortable moments of socialist fear-mongering and this whole scary foreigner discourse that's happening in the newspapers surrounding the murder. So you had, like, the press being like, ooh, is it the secret socialist groups? Is it foreigners? You know, so that was very timely, I felt. Other than that, I was just so charmed by Holmes and Watson's entire interaction, their meeting, and then just, like, everything that they do together is just lovely. Some of my favorite exchanges, I think, between these two characters ever are in this book, particularly the little conversation they have the very first time they meet where they talk about their vices. I love that moment so much. So you reread the story in March, and then you just read it again. Was there anything particularly different about either rereading it right now or things that you picked up on or listening to it? Because I read all of, I read all of the stories kind of in a row, and then coming back after to this one after reading them all, it was really clear some of the seeds of mm-hmm. things that become themes and story threads and sort of character moments later in the stories that are planted in the study in Scarlet very very early on. Holmes's drug use and his relationship with that, and his mental well being, and his relationship mm-hmm. not just to law and justice but to the police and the way that he talks to them, plays them a little bit. And how they speak to him and how that changes over time. And then the beginnings of how his and Watson's relationship is going to develop. All of those kernels are in this story. It's interesting to see them evolve, knowing Arthur Conan Doyle wrote this when he was 27. And he had no idea where this was going to go or what was going to come next. And then other details he is so fast and loose with. People do give him hell for the lack of continuity. And I think most notable in this story is that we learn, so Watson serves in the Battle of Maiwan, which occurred in 1880, which was incredibly deadly. And so that is where Watson is wounded. In the study in Scarlet, it is a shoulder wound. His leg wound is never mentioned. Later in other stories, I think even in The Sign of Four, we get the leg wound. He says something about where he took a bullet. Right. In his leg. So. I think the way that readers have absolved this is usually just to agree that Watson has two war wounds, one of which is not mentioned until later, and the other one of which is sort of forgotten about. So, other than that, though, there's a fair amount of continuity in terms of the characterization, which I really do want to get into because I think this is one of the things that struck us most rereading A Study in Scarlet is the characterization of these two characters, particularly Holmes. Yeah. There is this disconnect between a lot of portrayals of Holmes and this young, about 27-year-old Holmes that we have in A Study in Scarlet. So we asked our two narrators, Alma and Kyle, the same question. So this is what they had to say about reading A Study in Scarlet. 
So the reason I requested Studying Scarlet is because I really love how it lays the groundwork for everything that comes after it. Like how Watson's immediately like, yes, I am the man for him. Like just this dude's just like ride or die immediately. Um, I already also wanted to pick it because I feel like it's such an interesting case, but something that a lot of adaptations I think have kind of failed to grasp about it is that it's really simple, like at its core when you really think about it. I really support this dude like just being like, oh, I'm gonna die anyway, so I might as well f this guy up for being a f***ing creep. In my opinion, Drebber absolutely deserved it, which makes this even more satisfying. As far as my personal relationship to Holmes, honestly, I was at my grandparents' house when I was around 7 or 8, and I had nothing to do, so I just raided this bookshelf and read about murder all summer, which really explains a lot about why I am the way I am. Um, I'm a big Sherlock fan, but haven't been exposed uh, to much of the original source material, and I wanted this opportunity to get to dive into uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's work. I decided to record this without having read the full second part of the story. A lot of times I'm actually experiencing what the characters are experiencing for the first time. It was really cool to get to have the characters be informing my choices and really have that be happening in a very live and um, organic way. Yeah, so that was something I, I really wanted to talk about in this episode, is to sort of take stock of what A Study in Scarlet tells us about both Holmes and Watson. Both of them, really, but Holmes in particular yeah. is so ubiquitous, and his name is nearly synonymous with detective fiction, and he, versions of him are in pop culture everywhere that you can know a lot about him without ever having read the actual tales. But it's he gets turned into this sort of exaggerated figure that I think is a little bit removed from who you meet in this story. Yeah, so what does Watson tell us about Holmes? Quite a lot. The first thing is his age, and I think it's notable because it's so shocking. Holmes' birth date is generally agreed upon to be January 6, 1854, which makes Holmes 27 in A Study in Scarlet. I think we usually accept Watson yeah. to be about 29 or so, so usually about two years older but certainly mm -hmm. 30 or younger. So they're young. They're both younger than me. If Sherlock Holmes, if you were making a real modern adaption of A Study in Scarlet... It would be us. Sherlock Holmes <laughs> would be a millennial. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else do you have? He cannot afford his rent. Right. Like, obviously he's well known enough, well known enough that Scotland Yard comes to ask him for help. Mm -hmm. But he's not really established. Right. You know, he's not really making money. And yeah. he's living in kind of a dump and he needs to find somewhere else to live because he can't pay his bills. I think it is also very funny that the person he picks to live with him is self-described bad with money. Bad with money. <laughs> so uh, what else do you have? Do you have anything else particularly about Holmes that we learn? We get a lot of information about what he looks like, how he talks. A lot of information about what he looks we like. We know he's tall, he's got a big forehead, he's got a big nose and dark hair. He's a little Striking fastidious. Striking jaw. And how he dresses. Yeah, we get a lot of that where it's like, okay, I got it, sir. I got it, yeah. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. For talking at length picture. about the elegance of his hands. And also plasters on his hands, which I love. Just from the, like, the chemical coloring and, yeah, cuts yeah. and burns. But we know almost nothing about his background. But I want to also just mention before we move on too much is that scene in the lab at St. Bart's, 
where, because this is again like where we get a slightly different homes than we are perhaps expecting from the very sort of serious, logical homes that we get in adaptations, where he is so charming and so enthusiastic. Watson, there's this part where Watson says, had he discovered a gold mine, greater delight could not have shown upon his features. And this part, which is one of my favorite, just minor little lines, where Watson says, he seized me by the coat sleeve in his eagerness, which I think is just so charming. He's just so excited about this little chemical discovery that he's made. Um, yeah, and I think it's, like, very sweet and it makes you like Holmes immediately. I mean, all the deduction and the intelligence aside, his enthusiasm is really what makes him so likable right away. And then again, you have that moment when Holmes is trying to air all his dirty laundry. He asks Watson, quote-unquote, anxiously if Watson objects yeah. to his violin playing, which I think is very cute. It is cute. Yeah, those are two other facts we forgot. He plays the violin and he smokes. Yes. Like a chimney. And Watson notices, he, you hinted at this earlier, but Watson notices in Holmes's lethargy when he is quote-unquote down in the dumps that he suspects drug use, but then he brushes that idea aside because he doesn't at this moment think it fits in with Holmes's character. We know that people think he's a little odd. Like Stanford comments that he's kind of bizarre- the police are not very nice kind of behind his back. And then he, my other favorite little detail, which is worth mentioning, that he describes himself as getting down in the dumps. Very cute. I mean, it's horrible, but it's, the way he phrases it is very sweet. That, that's one of my like, favorite yeah, just moments. Just like, set me in the sun and I'll feel a little better Yes, later. that's one of my favorite moments when Holmes is detailing all of his shortcomings, where he's like, well, if we're going to be roommates, Let's just clear the air. And yeah. Watson being like, I sleep weird hours and I'm quote unquote lazy. I know. Which I don't think is quite fair <laughs> to himself. But he's in a bad, rough spot yeah. at the moment. Yeah, so that, I think that's transitions to what Watson tells us about himself. Right. Which I think in some ways to me is even more interesting because it's, He's, I think he's, like, trying not to talk about how bad things are in his life in the story. He does say, he's like, he's not having a good time. Right. It's pretty obvious that Watson is suffering from PTSD. Yeah. He describes himself as that his nerves are shattered. He is also really friendless, which I, which yeah. this really stuck out to me in this reading, because I think we think of Watson as the one who is more socially adept out of the two of them. However, in A Study in Scarlet, it's really emphasized how lonely he is. He's really sort of washed up right. in London after this kind of horrific thing happens to him. And then his kind of his extended family is deceased. Holmes and Watson need each other. They do. Right? He's 29, 30-ish. He was young. Mm -hmm. He went to medical school, so he's studied. Right. He's, he's smart, sort of, which I think is worth Yeah, learning. he's intelligent. But he was doing his, like, the job that he had studied for, and then he gets injured and he can't do it anymore. Um, you know, I think it's sort of clear that he can't work because of his physical and mental well-being. So he's kind of just, and he's not only just sort of washed up in London because he doesn't have anywhere else to go, he's sort of drifting mm -hmm. 
without purpose or people to connect to, and then by chance ends up living with this guy who is kind of a mystery in himself. And we see Watson kind of diving into solving the mystery of what Holmes does, and but also then just getting swept up into the the process of solving mysteries in their way. So people talk more about how Holmes needs Watson, mm-hmm. but I think meeting him when he did probably saved him. So what else do we know? I had a couple other thoughts about what else we know about Watson. He's down on his luck. He's living on a pension mm-hmm. and living in a hotel. Um, a pricey hotel. Meets, so he's blowing through his money. And when he meets Mike Stanford, he's day drinking in a bar. Yeah! <laughs> so sad. It's so sad. Because <laughs> that's just, you know, he's got nothing else going on. Um, and here's one other weird little detail. And this is a throwaway line. But he has a dog. A bull pup. Who is not the same dog, I think, that Holmes kills later. Because that dog is described as a terrier. I do like that the Richie Holmes movies have Watson (laughs) having a dog. Our dog. If you don't have any money and you're living in a hotel, why do you have a dog? But, you know, I mean, it's, um, I think the same response as all these people during quarantine adopting dogs. (laughs) I'm having a bad time. I need a That's dog. That's true. He's like, I just need this dog right here. That's, yeah, good point. One of the other things I wanted to say about, that we know about Watson, is that he's a reader. Yeah. Which I think is really charming. And he compares Holmes to fictional detectives, kind of in his head. I love this moment. Which I adore. There is a part, it is so funny to me, but Holmes is uh-huh. offended at Watson's comparison <laughs> Two fictional detectives, and then Watson is annoyed that Holmes is rude about characters that he likes, which is very relatable. This is the funny part to me, where Holmes gets very uppity about Dupin, who is Edgar Allan Poe's detective, and he condemns him for being quote-unquote showy. It's like, yeah, you've got room to talk. As if Holmes isn't the most dramatic theater kid. Who's ever become a consulting detective? The stage lost a great actor. Idea that Watson is read and probably reads detective fiction. I think he's kind of a genre fiction reader. For sure. I mean, I imagine he reads a lot of, like, Wilkie Collins-style stuff. You know, he loves, like, a a sensation novel. So he, he is sort of applying his version of trying to deduce Holmes. Yes. To the situation... And he's not great at it, but he gives it a good shot. He's he's so okay at it. at it, yeah. I mean, he gets Holmes's abilities down pat pretty well. He just can't make the conclusion of Holmes's career. Because, apparently, it doesn't exist. Like, Holmes is the only one who does this, so how could Watson figure it out? You have the very iconic moments of... Holmes not realizing that the earth revolves around the sun, and you have Holmes's ridiculous theory of the brain being like an attic. One of my favorite takedowns of it is elementary. Yes, I was gonna- Where he's like pouring oil into the glass of water, and then Joan is like, the brain, that's not even how that works. Right. And then I think another thing that is really interesting about Holmes's character in this particular novella, as opposed to later ones- is that he is a bit annoyed that the police will take credit for his work. So this changes, of course, to the degree that Holmes prefers that they actually take the credit. This highlights Holmes' youth here and how early he is in his career. 
he's a little bit bitter at the police taking credit in the last chapter, which is then why Watson goes on to write A Study in Scarlet, to be like, yeah. hey, look at this man who has done this incredible thing, and he's not getting any credit. Actually, now that I think of it, I think he sort of sublimates his need for public attention for Watson's attention. Having a live-in best friend who goes, wow! But you have this moment, which I think is very telling, of this really sweet relationship that you have blossoming between Holmes and Watson, where Watson writes that Holmes flushes up with pleasure at his compliments and that he blushes, and he says, I had already observed that he was as sensitive to flattery on the score of his art as any young girl could be of her beauty. Watson, he doesn't necessarily solve the mystery of Holmes, but I do think he figures him out as a person. Yeah. Really early on. Like, in contrast, Watson is always the character that comes across as being more conventional. And Mm -hmm. Holmes is sort of the, he has stranger interests, he has a strange job, and he's the one kind of pulling Watson into the strange and unusual. But there's something about him that, like, Watson is drawn to that. That's really special. Yeah, so let's talk about Holmes and the police in this early story. This story gives us, I think, an insight into sort of both the collaboration, cooperation, and this tension that we see with Holmes as a non-traditional crime solver, and then the police, the Scotland Yard, sort of more traditional arm of justice. Um, Mm -hmm. You're introduced to the two sort of most well-known and iconic Scotland Yard detectives. Yeah. Definitely. In the story, so Lestrade and Gregson, they Holmes kind of baits them against each other, and they're kind <laughs> of in competition both with each other and with him to collect clues to be able to solve the Lorston Garden mysteries. <laughs> Neither of them are particularly sympathetic. No. In this first story. They're cops, right? So they can only be so sympathetic. Right. I think what Conan Doyle is doing is a lot of what... 19th century detective and crime fiction is doing, Mm. which is depicting the official police, so police detectives and just police more broadly, as pretty incompetent. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, the majority of Victorian literature, which just depicts police as either not able to solve the crime or they're following the wrong track, as they do in the story, or Mm -hmm. they are just not smart enough to actually solve the crime. Well, I mean, they're probably certainly more established than he is, where he's just sort of, like, ferreting his way into crime scenes and hoping that people don't kick him out, (laughs) I guess. And the way that he's able to do this is through what he calls the science of deduction. So a whole chapter. What I think is really interesting about deduction, and I would be interested in hearing your interpretation of this or your response to what I'm about to say, is that as much as it is a science, it is an art as well. If you pay really, really minute attention to the language, you will notice that the words science and art often come up together when talking about deduction. There's that very famous line about the scarlet thread of murder, Holmes saying, well, why don't, why don't we use a little bit of art jargon? It throws into question 
the use of rationalism is, is strictly what Holmes engages in. I would actually contend that Holmes is using combination of art and science to accomplish what he does. I think this speaks to a larger misconception as of Holmes as a strictly rational man. He is a rational man, but I don't think he is strictly rational. It is undeniable that he thrills in the sensation of detection. And whether yeah. or not he's conscious of it, he conceives mm -hmm. of detection as an art. I recently read On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts by Thomas De Quincey. And it has this interesting. very interesting moment in which De Quincey writes, All other murders look pale by the deep crimson of his. So I was really interested in this comparative language of this deep crimson or scarlet thread running through something that is pale. Mm. Right? And then both texts are playing with this idea of murder as art. People tend to interpret Holmes as being this like thinking machine character yeah. who's very cold and analytical. And I think, like, I can see where that got popularized, but I think that really does him as a disservice. Not just in his, his relationships with Watson and with other people and the emotion and the care that he has towards his work, which I think he thinks about in a very scientific... He probably would argue with us if he was listening to this oh, conversation and go, absolutely. oh, no, 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 I am a scientist and this is like the process that I follow yes. to gather information. No, he would um, not like this. <laughs> no, so sorry, man, but you're sorry, also not real. But so you're wrong. <laughs> um, Even in A Studying of Scarlet, he says, the mystery stimulates the imagination. Where there is no imagination, there is no horror. So these yeah. things are all intertwined and they cannot be separated. But his, like his own emotional investment and emotional fulfillment in the process mm -hmm. of detection, I think raises that. Yes. When you think of some of his other interests, other than like doing his science experiments and stuff, which he does in their kitchen, um, mm -hmm. I mean, he plays the violin and he likes going to the opera. Right. And listening to music, which I think he also would think, oh, I listen to it in a very rational way, but still there's like that emotional investment and emotional outcome. Right, which I think is funny considering the most recent lawsuit. Yeah. Right? From the Condoyle yeah. estate of Astro McCombs mm -hmm. not having emotions. <laughs> he's full of them. He's he gets full frustrated. Of them. He laughs. He's very vain. He right. gets a little pissy. He shows oh, off. for sure. I mean, so, I, I mean, adore I think, him. I think all this to say is that when we're reading these stories, I think we need to think more broadly about rationalism and about about emotion and about art and about masculinity and western enlightenment ideals and how these things are all playing with each other mm -hmm. and are complicating each other and building off of each other we have watson writing this in response to the mystery. It's a little bit of a Russian doll sort of narrative structure because obviously in a literal sense, we're reading what Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, which was published in this Christmas annual and then the later stories are in the Strand magazine. But in the universe of the story, Watson is publishing these stories in mm -hmm. the Strand magazine also. Right. So, so they get like even narrators more on narrators on narrators. complicated and interesting 
further on when Conan Doyle himself starts writing in the Strand, and then you really have this mirroring of Watson and Conan Doyle, yeah. and this even deeper Russian nesting doll. Watson narrating these mysteries, I think, is such a foundation for yeah. so many mystery novels, crime novels, detective fiction to come. It's such a standard. Like you said, we have Conan Doyle as author and Watson as author. It's also interesting that they are about the same age at this point. I've always kind of had this impression, Penny Dreadful, sort of garish murder stories Mm -hmm. were popular in this time period. Um, And the Holmes stories are not really talked about in the same breath as that type of fiction. And I think Doyle wanted people to sort of think that his detective had sort of this science on his side and was sort of elegant in his detection. Even though he is, you know, a little bit gleeful about details of the dramatic murder. Mm -hmm. He's not like a base. He studies music and philosophy as well as science. No, you're totally right. Detective fiction for the masses. It's trying to elevate this a little bit. There's actually a book about this. Um, or at least a chapter. Yeah, sure. So there's a book called Purity and Contamination in Late Victorian Detective Fiction by Christopher Petard. And chapter two explores okay. popular detective fiction stories in the Strand as a vehicle of purification for the genre. So that whole idea of what you're saying about Penny Dreadfuls and like sensation fiction being like very like quote unquote low class and gory mm-hmm. and gruesome and not elevated highbrow literature is incredibly correct the public perception of it and i think conan doyle is very consciously trying to make his literature much more highbrow a lot of crime fiction and specifically sherlock holmes isn't gruesome right a lot of it is about theft no property damage like middle class concerns Mm -hmm. rather than gruesome, gory murders. Like, I buy this thesis to a certain degree, Mm. saying that Sherlock Holmes seeks to suppress its sensational elements and to provide healthy reading in order to purify the crime narrative. And I do agree Mm -hmm. with that to a certain degree, but it isn't without sensation. And it's not without. Things like Speckled Band are really disturbing. Not just the snake slithering through the vent or whatever yeah. but the circumstances of how it happens is right like really there's awful. A, it's something that is gruesome that is mentioned. i mean the, the story with the ears true maybe i'm sort of like changing my mind here no i think you're right i just don't think it is black and white you know it, yeah. it's that's true not as sensational as a penny dreadful for sure and the writing is better but it's not without its elements of sensation, which I like. I want them in there. I wanted to touch a little bit on our diversion out west. Halfway through, when you're like slam dunked into Utah, is almost the biggest misconception. Mm-hmm. It was like turning a page and thinking, oh, am I reading a chapter from a book that is a completely different story? Without any warning, takes us to my neck of the woods, because I live in Colorado and I grew up in Arizona. And so all of a sudden we're like... I wanted to ask you what your experience was reading this as a person who lives in the American West, because this is not... I live in the Midwest, (laughs) right? So I am like Lake 
and forests and dunes person in yeah. cornfields. Because most of it is really fictional. So the Great Alkali Plain is not real. And from the narration, the it would seem to cover Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, parts of Colorado, Montana, and Idaho. So its exact location is even a little ambiguous. I always get a little bit bummed out when people describe in the Southwest with these terms like barren and desolate and repulsive. In my opinion, some of the most beautiful places in our country, you know, thinking about them as this vast uninhabited wilderness is really untrue now and also in 1847 when the story would have taken place and also when Conan Doyle was writing it because indigenous people have always lived and taken mm -hmm. care of those lands and stewarded them. There were people there right. for a long time before the story started. It's something that pops up in literature in this period fairly often. Like there's a cowboy in Dracula. Yes. I was thinking of... Quincy. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it Quincy in Dracula? Who is from Texas at a notable right. time in Texas history. Which is why that's in there. And the reason I bring that up is because you also have these ideas of shifting boundaries and borders in A Study in Scarlet. You have this moment early on when they're talking about the West about how it is a barrier against the mm -hmm. advance of civilization, right? So you have all these ideas of global expansion, but I do find this idea of all of the quote-unquote dregs of the edges of civilization filtering back into yeah. London. Very interesting. Early, like really, really early in the novella, Watson says, under such circumstances, I naturally gravitated to London, that great cesspool into which all the loungers and idlers of the empire are irresistibly drained. So you have this idea of damaged people, I suppose, filtering into London, into the cesspool of London, but this idea of London being contaminated by the mm. global. Woof. <laughs> right? So you have this murder that occurred in London right. by Americans, right? So it's an entirely yeah. American crime. It just happens in London. I do want to clarify that when I say damaged, I'm talking about the perspective of the text, not us as readers, per se. So we may take issue about that, but when I am saying that the text is considering Watson and Jefferson Hope as damaged by empire, that is its perspective. So when I was doing a lot of research for Superstition, which is the other podcast that I work on, which has this whole plot line mm -hmm. about people running rivers and trying to map parts of Arizona at the turn of the century. I was doing a lot of research on the way people were writing about railroad expansion and that sort of thing. And so it reads almost like, like Western propaganda, just the way that it's sort of framed these rugged men on the edge of civilization, not thinking that, you know, there are lots of other people who lived in Utah at that time period and all of the other <laughs> complicated colonial things that come with talking about the West in that period of time, but... In a very unpleasant way, this book is wary mm. of empire. Not because empire is evil, but for its effect on quote-unquote civilization being British people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's a really good point. The book, I think, is concerned about the damage done 
to white people broadly and and white men specifically, but I think it's concerned about the way that imperial expansion is damaging, right? Mm-hmm. These are all very bodily damages. So you have Watson who is injured by war. Jefferson Hope has a heart condition that is caused by spending too much time in the sun. Something like that, yeah. I think. So, I mean, it's basically, I think, this idea of a heat stroke Mm -hmm. maybe affecting his heart. But you have all of these bodily damages that are occurring to people because Mm -hmm. of empire. And I think Conan Doyle, very broadly, is concerned about empire for its effect on the British body politic rather than the horrible, atrocious things that are happening. So, I mean, it's very, it's only, like, a minor part of this story, I think. But the context It just sort of explains why both of those storylines ended up in the same tale. Right. Like, I think that is where the connection lies. Because it is, again, weird diversion. But I think that is... Something of the yeah. thought process. And so there. I, I mean, I did a little, obviously, some background research about the story, and I did find out um, <laughs> that Do- uh, Doyle privately apologized to the Mormon Church for writing what he called a scurrilous book about the Mormons. And this was something that came out after he was <sighs> dead. So, <laughs> so that's oh. so his daughter what? later. <laughs> After he passed away, revealed, like, yeah, my dad had never met anybody who was Mormon. He maybe read some books by some Mormon writers, but he had no idea what he was talking about. And he said he was sorry. That's so funny. So that so also funny. sort of hand in hand tells you, if you how much he actually, like, researched to be- tell this part of the story. Oh. Very, very not, little. He, like, knew assume. the name Joseph Smith. And probably where Utah was. Right. If Conan Doyle is going to be in the business of apologizing <laughs> to re- misrepresent people. I don't know if Mormons are the top of the list. No, oh, I wouldn't say so. Like the entire continent of Africa might be a start. There's a fun fact. That's very funny, though. So, my final question is, do you think that this is a good mystery? No, I don't. <laughs> is it enjoyable? Yes. Yes. I think parts of the story are great. The mystery itself occurs so quickly. You have a couple of really iconic moments. You have the Baker Street Irregulars, who are very iconic. Word scrawled on the wall is very... Yeah. Visually very there, iconic. Right. And um, there are, like, there are things I really like about this, like the idea of Jefferson Hope making his victim choose their poison. Mm-hmm. There's there's aspects of the mystery that are really enjoyable. But I think generally speaking, there are certainly way stronger mysteries in the in the canon. What about you? So I don't I don't think that it is. It breaks what people consider kind of the cardinal rule of detective fiction is that as a reader who's paying attention, you're supposed to have all the facts to be able to figure out who did it. By the time the detective mm-hmm. in the story figures out who did it, even if yeah. you can't necessarily add them up or you don't have the context, you're supposed to be able to look back and go, oh, I can see where you got this from. And yeah. Holmes finds this piece of information about who Jefferson Hope is, and he keeps it up his butt 
for like three yeah. chapters. And then just out of nowhere, he's like, by the way, here's something that I haven't mentioned to anybody that I know that's going to solve the case. So there's no way, right. not only as Watson is like the person who's along for the ride, but as us as readers, to have any way of figuring out what happened. Or I think that's part of the reason why the diversion into the West is so shocking is because it had nothing to do with anything that was talked about until all of a sudden you're there. So it's really yes, all over the place. you can see why this novella did not fly off the shelves. Yeah. It wasn't until Conan Doyle started publishing West Strand that the Sherlock Holmes stories became popular, and frankly, it's not that surprising. Mm-mm. The mystery being really stilted is interesting. I wonder if that has anything to do with its lack of adaptations. The most notable one, I think, is certainly BBC Sherlock, which is really shocking how many one-to-one modernizations they can make. You have Watson returning from Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. which just works out so easily. That says something about American exceptionalism. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it was very, you know, like, you didn't have to stretch to have him also be an Afghan war vet. I came up with a short list because I was kind of racking my brain for one-to-one adaptations, which really don't exist. Mm. And the one that sort of most notably is missing is the Granada Holmes did not do right. a study in Scarlet because of the age of, of Jeremy Brett and David Burke. And that would have been probably a pretty one-to-one adaption, but... I'm sure. Um, well, we know that Jeremy Brett was a stickler. There are sort of two episodes in Elementary that contain elements of this story. So there's The Deductionist, which is season one, episode 14. And then a study okay. in Charlotte, which is in season oh, four, yeah. have elements of this tale. Right. And, of course, you do have Holmes and Watson meeting in elementary yeah, for the first time. Although they are older. The other one worth noting is the the Soviet Holmes, or old Russian Holmes. The <laughs> is, old one, okay. Which is called Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. So it's okay. the second episode of their show. Oh, interesting. Um, where the first combines their meeting with the speckled band and then the second kind of covers the crime in the hope case they like give their meeting a more interesting case (laughs) yeah so there are not other than sort of like stage adaptions or radio adaptions there are not a ton Mm -hmm. of direct adaptions of a study in scarlet it is such a sweet introduction it's a very famous introduction there's a plaque at St. Bart's. Where they met! I think that's so cute. Imagine having your friendship be that iconic that they put a I plaque know, up right? on a hospital. I think A Study in Scarlet is, it's exhaustively talked about. It's very iconic for a reason. It's weird. It's a little inelegant and clunky at times. But it also sets the stage for who these characters are and where the stories are headed. Highs are so high. Laboratory of it all. It's about yeah. the roommate's. It's about the meat-cutes. It's about what the hell happened to the dog. It's about Watson moving in with someone and being like, I am obsessed with you, and I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and I'm very uncomfortable about that, so I'm going to write down sit here everything that you notes. know. And then right. throw it away, because I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and then publish it in a book. I mean, presumably they talk about, they air that out before it makes it to print i hope so surprise (laughs) here's my analysis of your faults yes you know nothing yeah and you're okay at boxing 
No, I guess he says he's a good boxer. of the short story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band. And a special thanks to Alma and Kyle, our excellent narrators. So we'd love to know what you thought of the episode, and in particular, we would like to hear what your favorite adaption of these two characters meeting in fiction is. I have my answer, which is probably elementary, but we want to know what you think and what you thought of listening to the story. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod and our website howeverimprobablepodcast.com where you can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we remain our dear listeners. Very sincerely yours. Thank you.